Well, what's interesting is that consumers have more power than they think they do, right? So we have buying power. And by changing our habits very slightly, that can actually have a massive knock-on effect. And manufacturers will look at that and realize that there is a market for something else. So by consumers or a small selection of consumers changing their habits, it means that manufacturers will actually take a look at what they're creating and see if they can make a better, it's kind of like a double nudge where consumers essentially in the beginning nudge the manufacturers to relook at some of the stuff that they're creating. And then in return, they will create something new for the consumer that the consumer will therefore be nudged to choose instead. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the PBM podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today, I am overjoyed to introduce you to a friend and fellow act- activist and advocate, Imi Lucas. Imi is a social media activist, campaigner with a focus on sustainability and zero waste living. Using both Instagram and YouTube, Imi attempts to seek and merge veganism with zero waste to encourage both communities in a wider environmental context. Imi's activism centers itself around the small changes we can all make in our everyday lives to ensure that we create a huge impact and we can hopefully change the world one plastic bottle at a time. What an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Mimi. Thank you very much for having me. So before we dive into everything you're doing with your life now and all your kind of uh, specialties and focuses, let's go back and talk about how you entered into the plant-based and vegan world and tell us your vegan story. Wow. Okay. So I've probably been like on this road to veganism for like six years, but in the very beginning, it was for very vain reasons. I followed a... uh, very popular Australian YouTuber who made me feel like I could... Can we name her? Do you want me to? Sure. Well, I mean, I think you can all guess it's freely, uh-huh. but I saw that she was really slim and I was like a teenager at that point mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, this is a really great way to eat lots of food and basically be thin. Mm-hmm. And obviously a year into my veganism, I realized that that is a terrible reason to um, choose to, you know, eat, live this lifestyle. And it's when I found, you know, documentaries like Earthlings, which I could only get through like 15 minutes of because it was so horrific. And so connecting to the actual harm that, you know, my everyday lifestyle was causing to people, to animals, to the environment, that's when my veganism kind of became like veganism rather than this lifestyle that I was trying out for dietary reasons. And yeah, I mean... I don't know it took me a few years I think because I tried to go vegan overnight and for me personally that did not work Mm -hmm. mainly because I hadn't connected to it properly Mm -hmm. but yeah several years on and I'm very very much happy with my decision happy healthy and vegan. And how were your friends and family about it when you told them? Because not everyone's family is very accepting or understanding. (laughs) It's a bit like coming out. (laughs) Oh my, well, okay. My mum was like, you're going to die. You're going to, you're actually going to die. And (laughs) I genuinely for a moment thought, oh my God, am I, am I going to die? And I mean, you know, you have to poo poo those kind of things Mm -hmm. because she knows just as little as nutrition as I do. And I don't know, like one of my friends, Lottie, she'd been vegetarian since she was 11. So we'd always had, you know, one of the weirdos in our group mm-hmm. and we always thought she was a weirdo. Mm-hmm. But having someone who'd already, you know, made a decision like that to be vegetarian when she was so young, you know, my friends are supportive and my friends are really great. So my parents and my family were the ones who were more like, you're literally going to die. 
what are you thinking? But now they are predominant. My parents, anyway, are predominantly vegan. So, mm-hmm. so you came in for the health and wellness reasons, same as myself. And and some people say we come for the health and stay for the animals. Do you feel that change in yourself towards animals since you've been a vegan? Do you have a? Do you see them in a different way now that you kind of they don't they're no longer a part of your meal? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like yeah, I came in for incredibly shallow reasons, but the reason I stayed was for animals and then later when I discovered the kind of environmental implications and the human rights implications it just further cemented because I'm I'm healthy on a vegan diet that you know this was the right right lifestyle and right choice for me to live aligned with my values mm-hmm. definitely words are really powerful things and you know labels are also particularly powerful and they can box us in mm-hmm. um you and i've talked a lot about the word vegan the vegan yeah. community and the culture and the, and everything to do with that word mm-hmm. um i do sense there is a kind of distance distancing of yourself from the, the word or maybe the community but do you want to talk a little bit about why you feel like there are issues within the, the community and the movement and, and why it kind of can feel a little bit exclusive It's really interesting you say that because um, I have felt personally a little bit distanced, but I haven't vocalised that at all. So it's very interesting that you've you've kind of picked up on that. And it's not because I dislike the term vegan at all. And it's not because I don't want to be a part of this movement because I bloody love it. I mean, everyone I've met is, is incredible. I think it's just because what I'm trying to do now with my activism is I'm trying to attract a different group of people from a different angle. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you said, we became vegan for health reasons in the beginning and stayed for animals, etc. There are so many, the one, the most amazing things about veganism is that there are so many angles. And now because I'm quite cemented in the environmental movement, I try to encourage plant-based eating as a means to show how environmentally friendly that is. But, you know, obviously with the the hidden undertones of hoping people will take that plant-based and, you know, make it into a vegan lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I think also maybe in the beginning, one of the things I have not a problem with, but it just didn't resonate with me. So it might not be good for my activism is that sometimes it's not encouraged to kind of take a few steps towards like meatless Mondays or being vegan one day a week or two days a week in the beginning. And I personally feel for my kind of activism and my personality type, that's what got me down this whole low impact, low waste, zero waste lifestyle. And if I can go from that snowballing effect of choosing, you know, one small thing and now look where I am, I feel like the same could be shown like for veganism. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying to someone, why don't you try eating like a couple of plant-based meals a week with your family or stuff like that? I really truly believe it can have such a massive snowball effect. And I think that the little changes should be um, emphasized. But then again, having said that, I think, you know, everyone has a different approach to activism because not one human is the same. Mm. So I think it's really important that you have different activists having, you know, either you should go 100% vegan or you should go vegan one day a week Mm. just to, you know, make sure that you are... What are like ticking all the boxes mm-hmm. and making sure you're spreading the awareness? Yeah, because people are very different, aren't they? Everyone's got a different story and a different experience and a different way of understanding their place in the world, and and also not just their previous experience, but their environment as well, their social standing, their economic standing as well. Not everyone has the luxury of 
being able to afford all the vegan convenience food, for example. Yeah. We're often criticized. People say, oh, your lifestyle's too expensive. But I think people say that they often see the vegan junk food, the prepackaged food, packaging we'll talk about in a bit. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, veganism is not expensive. Rice and beans and lentils and, you know, vegetables generally are not expensive, not at least in this part of the world. Um, but, Anyway, when it comes to kind of like taking on this lifestyle, how important do you think is community and kind of people around you to keeping at it? I think community is everything because, yeah, to us, food is inexpensive here. But think about people who live in food deserts mm. in you know, places where actually all food is expensive or actually it's more expensive to have certain types or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Fruits and vegetables and fresh stuff. Yeah, I mean, even all the time I've spent in, in the US, like, it's actually extortionate how much more expensive healthy food is. And it's kind of like, well, if if you're going to make healthy food more expensive than fast food, how can we expect people to make better choices if you're not creating that accessibility? But um, what did you say before you asked? That wasn't... So our community, to keeping community. people on the straight and narrow, keeping, the, keeping it going, really. Because it's not easy. In a society, where, or a carnistic society, as we call it, where the, the dominant paradigm is carnism, which teaches us that eating animals is normal, needed, and necessary, and that eating animals is essential for our health and our survival. So that's the kind of dominant paradigm, isn't it? Dr. Melanie Joy talks about that in her lectures. You can watch any of them on YouTube. But when that's everywhere, all around us, on the billboards on the TV, mm. in the ra on the radio, wherever you look, there's ads pushing animal products. So it's not easy for people to um, take this other road. And that's why I think community is essential, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I definitely don't think that I would have made all the choices I've made if I didn't have a very like tight community. Mm. But even I just mean like supportive friends like a lot of my friends are vegetarian and they try veganism every now and again but they're always happy to go with me to a new vegan restaurant they're always happy to like listen to me talk about any kind of like documentaries I've done or they love to come and and even having just supportive friends even if they're not vegan makes a huge difference vegan allies they call them yeah vegan yeah. allies mm. but I mean imagine if you are one person in the middle of nowhere and you're the only kind of vegan you know around if you have an online community that can help motivate you so much more and feel less isolated and feel less anxious about your choices and also feel less kind of lonely i think loneliness can be a really big problem for people especially if you're not only vegan but you're trying to be low waste and that can be in, like immensely isolating if you don't have a community so 100% and other than community what are some of the other things that we we need to keep keep the lifestyle moving forward and what are the challenges what are the challenges I think education I think we need to have what I love is that we have loads of youtubers who talk about different recipes and and stuff like that but I feel like we need more like people like Goji Man, for example, who actually have scientific backgrounds and evidence-based kind of nutritional advice. Because especially for people like me, I, I want to know that the information that I'm getting is scientifically based so that I can rely on that information and to ensure that I am doing what's right for my body and making sure that I'm really healthy. Things like that I think are really important accessibility I think is incredibly important people need to have access to you know all the healthy foods not 
not necessarily the vegan junk food, but I think it's also a bonus if we people have access to that and make it more affordable as well. Also, I think, although I think because there are lots of celebrities now that are vegan, it's giving the kind of image a different a different feel. Mm. And I think that that's really interesting and really important because then you can look up there and see someone like, oh, that person's also vegan. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I can be vegan mm. type thing. Some people have suggested that the vegan movement is being hijacked by capitalism, that it, that the kind of you know, <laughs> global corporations are now cottoning onto the idea that you can sell something if it has the word vegan on it because it's a novelty, because you know there's this new thing, it's a new fad, people are going to be jumping on it. How do we trust these companies? For example, McDonald's has started doing a vegan wrap and a vegan um, option here in the UK, but so many people have reported receiving their meal and it had chicken in it. Um, oh God! You know, so it's really hard to trust these large corporations. But part of me feels like it's important to encourage a change. Surely, I think it's important to encourage a change and support companies as long as they are authentic and genuinely moving towards a more uh, sustainable thing. I think veganism being a trend is not necessarily a bad thing. Or you know, people going vegan for reasons because Beyonce went vegan for a month whatever it's still promoting a vegan lifestyle I I mean I would never eat at McDonald's but that's because I don't believe that they have any senior members of staff who are you know actually interested in sustainability you can always tell if you go to the company's you know log or whatever I don't know where they have their kind of board board that's the word god I'm terrible with words um and if you see that they have a member who is high up in like a sustainability officer or manager, and if you look into that specific person and their interest in sustainability or veganism or whatever, that is a clear indication of actually how far that company is willing to go mm-hmm. to make real changes. A bit like Tesco's and Derek Sano, head of plant-based innovation. That's, that's a perfect example. Yeah. That's a company that realised veganism is now becoming very popular. They can make a shit ton of money from it, mm-hmm. but also they've done it in a in a way that is actually promoting it in a positive way rather than just trying to sell a bunch of shit that's mm-hmm. not good for us and, mm-hmm. and whatever. It's like with... Um, I stayed at the Hilton Bankside on Thursday because they have a vegan so. suite. Yeah. <laughs> I know, what is my life? It's ridiculous. Um, because they have a vegan suite. And what is amazing about that is that they consulted with the vegan society. They didn't just go it alone and just do the best they could. They went and consulted with an actual you know, society that have real knowledge and understanding of how to make what we consume vegan. And so that's a clear indication, even if it is just one suite in one hotel, it's showing how far we're we're coming, where we're going to go, and the resources that they're using. But if anyone you know who's listening wants to kind of find out about companies, definitely go and check out their board or their high like senior members of staff. And if they have a sustainability advocate who is quite clearly very interested, that's a good indication that these companies really are moving just past the fad and wanting to change for for much the better. So speaking of companies and corporations, um, they are often the, the reason that we have a lot of problems in this world. But obviously, they're fueled by the consumer, aren't they? The consumer, the consumer demand drives these corporations into existence. Um, and one of the major problems in our world today is plastic uh, and packaging. A lot of it is not recyclable, and a lot of it ends up in the ground or in the oceans. Um, 
there's a movement that's called the Zero Waste Movement, um, which is huge on social media. Everyone was talking about it. You were heavily involved in it. Do you want to give us a little uh, sort of human history of the Zero Waste Movement, how it all began and how you got yourself into it? Oh, I'm not sure I know how the Zero Waste Movement began because, I mean, it wasn't... <laughs> whatever people say, I don't think it was created by a... Mm, one person. ...middle-class white French woman <laughs> in, you know... But it was definitely popularised by her in terms of, you know, social media and whatever. But the idea of zero waste is is simply to try and reduce your waste as much as possible and therefore your kind of footprint on the planet. There's so much plastic packaging that comes with all of our food, with any, literally anything that we buy, anything we consume comes with some form of single-use packaging. And plastic is kind of what's massive in the I don't know uh, press at the moment because that is one of the biggest problems but it's not the only problem and zero waste I think the whole movement and what people are doing on social media is trying to help people tackle how to actually consume stuff but in a less wasteful way and it goes beyond packaging you know it's about buying things that are second hand and making sure that the resources that you're using are not taking a massive toll on the environment. And I mean, this is a very, very watered down version of what the zero waste movement is, of course. It's, but it's, yeah, I guess it's mainly about reducing your physical waste and looking beyond that to packaging and, sorry, resources. Mm. And is, it, is it possible to be completely zero waste? Well, I mean, as a person, so zero waste is actually an industrial term and mm. it's actually for companies. So if you think about a product then a zero waste company would design that end product to be reused and create a circular kind of economy and a circular design. So for example, in Amsterdam, they've got this company called Mud Jeans and you can wear your jeans and wear them out and then you take the jeans back and they basically take the whole jean apart and then they reuse those threads so you're not wasting anything. But for me, the term isn't necessarily uh, that useful anymore but I think it is a really great term for people who see it as a goal and not as a definitive kind of perfectionist thing because it can really, really have a massive drain on your mental health. people off, yeah. I mean, plastic's not going anywhere, is it? No. Uh, This is a resource like any other substance on this planet which is not biodegradable. You know, gold isn't biodegradable. Glass isn't isn't really... It is, but it isn't biodegradable. It, it 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 takes a long time to break down. Do you think that we should be putting limits on the amount of plastic we're creating? I think it's I think I think it's the wrong thing to demonize plastic mm-hmm. because plastic is actually an incredible material and if it's not downgraded it can actually be recycled if it's kept at the same grade but the problem is the way that we're consuming and the way that we're using it so it's more about creating items that aren't single use so if you created something I don't know. For example, like there is some plastic that we can never get rid of, you know, Mm -hmm. plastic that's in planes or in medical waste and things like that. But it's about creating it in a way that we can do something with that plastic and make sure that it's actually multiple use. Obviously, in medicine, you can't have multiple use because. Why can't we just grind it up and put it into bricks or like make buildings with it? I mean, you could do that, (laughs) but that doesn't really. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem because that's. 
you're just putting a band-aid on, you know, a gaping wound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry to give you a horrible image there. <laughs> but it's kind of like you need to you need to solve the initial manufacturing problems mm. but rather than trying to create a solution for But this is the bit I struggle with is that every you walk into a, a supermarket anywhere in the Western world or most of the world at least and you'll see aisles and aisles and aisles of products personal care, shampoos, uh, juices, milks, everything, and it's all in plastic. How, how, what will happen to those companies in that industry if we don't have those kinds of packaging? And what's the alternative? Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. If you go to a supermarket and everything there was completely package-free, mm-hmm. how would you react to that? Like, How would you change your behavior so that you could still get the same items that you wanted? I'd obviously have to carry my own packaging, wouldn't I? So any, anything that I bought for my body or to eat would have to be, go into a container. So I'd have to bring the container with me and leave with my own containers and, and then come back and forth. Right, so... But these places are like, you only there's like one or two in the whole city. No, 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 exactly. That's yeah. And that's the problem, it's an accessibility yeah. thing. Right. But say massive manufacturers decide, do you know what, we need to be better for the environment, so we're going to change. And if we change, then we're essentially giving consumers a nudge to change as well because we're presenting them the options. The problem is that we don't have access to those things. However, this week, something very, very interesting happened. There's this company called Loop mm-hmm. who have created essentially, they've, they've essentially zero waste-ified the system. Um, if you don't know, do you know Going Zero Waste, Catherine Kellogg? I've heard of her, yes. She did a whole story about it this week. So I, I definitely recommend you all to go and um, check her out because she did a much more in-depth, I can't, I can't quite remember the details about it, but it's essentially a massive move to zero waste, I, I don't know how to, what's the word, what's the word, taking Brings, away the package, yeah. packaging. <laughs> packaging free, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like this really interesting way of actually creating a system that makes it easy for consumers mm-hmm. to reduce their waste. In England. I think we'll it's, it I think it's worldwide. I'll include it, it, the details of this in the description of the podcast. And do you think, um, how much responsibility do manufacturers have to do this? And should consumers be putting pressure on manufacturers to, to, change the way they do things take plastic film for example this plastic film that covers our uh, breads and our vegetables and some products that isn't recyclable that often goes in the bin um, and ends up in a landfill because most places don't recycle it or is it recyclable but they just don't have the technology to do it well what's interesting is that consumers have more power than they think they do Mm. right so we have buying power and by changing our habits very slightly that can actually have a massive knock-on effect and manufacturers will look at that and realize that there is a market for something else so by consumers or a small selection of consumers changing their habits it means that manufacturers will actually take a look at what they're creating and see if they can make a better it's kind of like a double nudge where consumers have essentially in the beginning nudge the manufacturers to relook at some of the stuff that they're creating and then in return they will create something new for the consumer that the consumer will therefore be nudged to choose instead and it's like this really like lovely kind of um symbiosis of consumer nudging manufacturer who then responds in a way that nudges us to make better choices as well so it's definitely a mixture of two it can't be just up to the consumers because at the end of the day we're still at the mercy of what we're provided even if some of us do choose to make better choices that 
that's completely dependent on, you know, our economic background, where we live, all of that kind of stuff. So it's a nice kind of mix of us using our buying power, those who can afford to, those manufacturers who are willing to change, and then government putting in policy to make people like bloody Coca-Cola responsible for the, you know, 100 million plastic bottles that they produce each year. Mm. That's one of the problems is that they can produce these bottles and then it's not their responsibility. Right. Imagine if a government taxed them mm -hmm. even one one p per bottle or mm -hmm. zero point ten whatever. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you probably think if Coca Cola are losing that amount of money, they're going to change, aren't mm. they? They would make more of an effort to reclaim the bottles from the environment, wouldn't they? It just they're like these kind of plastic manufacturing monsters, just spitting out megatons of plastic every year without any consideration for the impact. All they care about is pulling in as much profit as possible. But you're absolutely right. I think if politicians or governments put some kind of levy that said, you are allowed to produce a certain number of plastic bottles each year, anything above that you'll be taxed on. And that will encourage, because obviously there must be some tracking system that they could create to allow a company to say, right, we've created 100,000 plastic bottles. 100,000 have gone out into the environment and we've recycled 75,000. You know what I mean? So then they would get like carbon credits, <laughs> plastic credits, you know, so the companies would get rewarded for making an effort to bring the plastic back into the system. Do you know what? I agree. But at the same time, I think because consumers are great, I think we should be rewarded for doing things well. And mm -hmm. I think companies should be taxed for doing things badly. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, think about how much shit that they put into the world and think about what we have not been able to choose to do better. Mm. I mean, if every single shop in the world was zero waste, we would all be inherently sustainable consumers because we wouldn't have the choice. Yeah. So yeah. someone, someone said to suck. me the other day that um, when you look at an animal in the wild, say like a chimpanzee, and you give it a banana, it eats the banana and it drops it on the floor. Um, it's a natural, um, a it's a natural kind of reaction of a sapient type creature like us to eat something and then drop it on the floor. That that when people you see people dropping coke cans or plastic bottles on the floor, you think what an idiot! Like how unconscious are you to do that? But when you think about it and you look at animals and the way animals behave, the packaging of food is not naturally non-biodegradable. It's always biodegradable. So surely to fix the problem, we need to have packaging that just disintegrates at all times because then you get around that problem so anything that ends up in the ocean or anything that ends up on the floor eventually when with rain and weather within a few months it turns into dust and it just returns to the earth surely i mean yeah i i agree but also at the same time like we are we have a herd mentality mm. like say you're walking through a car park and there are thousands and thousands of leaflets on the floor and you have something you're eating in a, a Lara bar and mm -hmm. you've got a packet, mm -hmm. you're more likely to throw it on the floor because you've seen so many others on the floor. Mm -hmm. However, if you're walking through a car park and there's one piece of trash on the floor, mm. you're less likely to throw yours down and mm -hmm. to pick it up mm -hmm. because you can see what the minority of people are doing compared to the majority of people. And I mean, imagine if you're walking down the street and you just throw your banana on the floor or whatever. That's not that's not great. What well, we we need a system to create less friction for us to be able to be more sustainable. So if we had compost bins everywhere instead of trash bins, we would be able to throw our compostable packaging or whatever into that bin. And therefore, they've made it easier for us by taking away the friction of not being able to have that compost bin. Mm. So it's about them making it easier for us as well as 
giving us an incentive to do Participate. so. Speaking of compostable, like why isn't all plastic packaging just compostable or made from plants? Isn't that just isn't that better? Why don't we just do that? Well, you also have to think about the resources that go into everything. Mm. I mean, plastic is so damaging because of the whole entire process. Mm -hmm. Like plastic compounds obviously come from oil, which has to be drilled and then it has to be manufactured, then it's transported. Like there are so many costs in that whole process. So to just simply exchange it, you're going to be placing a massive demand on a different material. But there are amazing things that people are doing. Like there's a guy in, I think it might, I can't remember where, which country he's uh, currently innovating in, but he is growing seaweed and he's creating edible packaging for fast food um, food. Mm -hmm. So you can actually eat the packaging at the same time. Mm -hmm. Something like that wow. is clever and it's innovative and it's it's quite low waste in terms of resources so we need to be championing those things but by being careful about the resources and the redistribution of that stuff so moving on now to low impact movement low impact movement yeah so this is something that you created um why <laughs> did you create it and tell us a little bit about its uh, its trajectory i'm actually glad i have a chance to talk about it because i worry that people think that i hate the sort of uh, the term zero waste or that I'm against the movement at all, which obviously I'm not. I fully support all zero wasters and, and the term. It's just, for me, I had got to a point in my activism where zero waste wasn't quite all-encompassing enough because I remember my first like Vvolution topics talk, mm -hmm. I talked about how I wanted to use my platform to merge veganism and zero waste because in the zero waste movement, I hadn't heard that many people talking about plant-based eating. I mean, now that's very different. Loads of the big zero wasters are, you know, talking about vegetarianism and veganism, which is amazing. But I also wanted it to be, just extend into this whole like array of lifestyles. And I wanted it to be my lifestyle. And therefore I didn't, I also didn't really intend to create a movement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just kind of happened. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things where I thought this term really works for me in the way that I'm living. So it's just simply another option for people who want to be sustainable, just in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. So it's about like minimalism. It's about veganism. It's about plant-based eating and it's about ethics and ethical fashion. It's about secondhand shopping. It's about, you know, reducing your physical and invisible waste. It's about the resources that go into our stuff. It's about being a kind human, about, you know, non-judgmentally helping to educate people. Also, I wanted to find a way to be more inclusive and to find a way to educate myself in a much more inclusive way and talk about accessibility and stuff like that. Mm. And so how do people go about becoming low impact? Talk us through the, the average home, bathroom, kitchen. Like, what do we do? How do we start? I think what you have to do is... I always tell people to try and live with their waste for like a week so that because if you don't understand your habits, it's very hard to change them. It's also very hard to just extinguish a habit. It's much better if you replace it with something. You have a much more like, I don't know, better success rate. So it's about, I think, spend a week or a month, however long you can bear <laughs> to spend with your waste. What with a big plastic bag? <laughs> <laughs> well, or a usable one, whatever you have. Bag, yeah. Um, but because if you get to understand your own habits, you can then understand how to analyze it mm. and, and move forward. Mm. So say you, for example, drink a liter of Coke every day. God forbid you would do that. <laughs> um, you know, you'd look at that first and you think, OK, I really can't be doing this because it's plastic, but also it's really shitty for my health. Mm -hmm. So try and find an alternative. You know, if 
a soda stream is something that will is a one-time purchase if you can get one secondhand even better um, but that will prevent you from wasting you know a bottle of a plastic bottle every single day you can make your own delicious cola you can make your own delicious cola <laughs> exactly you know, some or make it fun, put mm. some comedy back into it. You know, try your own DIYs, making your own... Yeah, if you're in the bathroom, try and use an unpackaged soap, make your own deodorant. Lush, shout out to Lush. They've got loads of amazing... Yeah, and they're coming pack. out with a new Naked yeah. range as well, mm. which is... I mean, Lush are a perfect example of a company that I support, even though they're not like 100% zero waste or 100% vegan, because they're making so many leaps and bounds in the right direction. And like, if we just support the companies who are 100% these things, we're really not going to get anywhere. No, we won't. At all. Yeah. But um, yeah, so honestly, start small and start with something that's really easy for you to change. Even if it's just a wooden toothbrush mm. or, I don't know, if you have periods, then, you know, reusable menstrual wear and stuff like that. Mm. Then it snowballs. Mm. Or if it's a coffee cup or a reusable water bottle or... yeah. Let's talk about plastic straws. Everyone was upset, has been obsessed with replacing plastic straws with reusable straws the last year or so. Yeah. Um, and everyone's talking about not using plastic straws and saving the ocean and saving the fish, forgetting that actually some 46% of ocean plastic and waste is fishing nets. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about perception and about how people perceive they're doing something good by cutting out plastic straws, but then at the same time, if they're still consuming fish, they're a major part of the problem. Okay, well, I mean, first of all, the plastic straw movement is quite a tricky thing to navigate anyway because it's incredibly, um, what's the word? It's it's quite exclusive and it's mm -hmm. quite ableist because obviously there are a lot of people who have disabilities who, you know, have to use plastic straws. And some people don't understand that argument, but quite frankly, they're clearly able-bodied, so they don't understand. Mm. So that's one thing that's troublesome, but also charities massively latched onto the plastic straw thing because it was a tiny and very easy change that someone could make mm -hmm. and when you incentivize someone with something that's very small but very easy that's when you know you're going to get the mass majority of people realizing that that's something that they can do mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily a bad thing it's a gateway to understanding it, the bigger problem yeah it is a gateway i mean I don't know. I've read a lot. I tried to read a lot of a lot of stuff about why it's problematic, but I I, I don't want to speak for you know um, for for people who who need to use them. Mm -hmm. I just I just think they could have chosen something else. But the the I guess I guess it was an, an easy thing for for big charities to choose. It's a difficult it's a difficult thing to navigate. I um, fishing nets. Yes, they are a massive, massive deal. And that's why I do try and tell people about it and, you know, promote it as a way of, like, saving, etc. However, I think the problem is that because fishing nets do... It's such a huge thing and how incredibly wasteful it is. Not eating fish is such a huge leap compared to not using a plastic straw, mm -hmm. it's quite obvious what's going to be much more, much easier. Mm -hmm. It's far less, you have far less hassle and far less friction to simply not use a straw rather than actively changing quite a fundamental way that someone eats and, and not choosing to eat fish. 
obviously not eating fish is going to be a much bigger impact. But that's why charities go for, or publicity, you know, PR stuff go for smaller things mm-hmm. because it's easier for people to, to get behind. Yeah, we can get the message in there. That's partly how plant-based news works. We're plant-based news, not vegan news. We want to be open uh, to all walks of life and all different types of people. Um, coming to the end now, um, what, are, what are some of the sort of key things you think that people should be thinking about when heading towards a low-impact lifestyle? Like, you know, what are, the, what are the kind of top tips that you give people on your platform? Okay, the first one is to not take yourself too seriously. I worried that as we got into this podcast, I was getting very serious <laughs> and taking the fun out of it. Mm. And that's something I have to remind myself a lot is really, really try not to take everything too seriously because at the end of the day, we do live in quite a hellish time when so many things that are terrible are going on. And I think that it's really important to to just take a breath and realise that Sometimes we look like absolute pricks, like drinking from a mason jar, with, <laughs> like our metal straw. Are you, you, are you, do you mean like making it feel and seem a bit exclusive, like a kind of very white middle class thing that we can have the luxury and the privilege to be able to do? I mean, it is a very white middle class yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I mean, come on. At the end of the day, like we're all just trying to do something good. There's no point in, in taking it so seriously to the point where you're alienating other people or even just yourself but also have some fun it's it's good to have some fun but the second one is definitely to start small I mean I started with a coffee cup that's the only thing that I changed and then suddenly now I pretty much even though obviously I don't call myself zero waste I pretty much live a zero waste lifestyle in you know what's what's possible but again that's because I have zero waste shops there's a new one that's open in Nunhead, you know. Oh, wow. Shout out to BYO. BYO in Nunhead, London. Yeah, and there's a BYO in Tooting as well. Mm-hmm. It's great because they're like covering all the boroughs. You've got Hetu as well, and you've got a few in North London. What's Harmless store? Mm-hmm. Shout out to Harmless. And a lot of supermarkets are trying to make more aims towards less packaging, aren't they? So they are, the conversation is being had. It's just whether these organizations are moving fast enough, considering the 800 million tons of plastic that's made every year. And how many tons go in the ocean? Eight million tons. Eight million tons, which yeah. is just, I can't even imagine that. I think it's like, it's like a rubbish truck every hour, I think, roughly. I don't know, but it's painful. It is painful. It is painful, but we all do as much as we can do. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one this one last question. So you know that joke, that vegan joke, you're on that desert island with the pig. You know that joke? Yeah, no, where was it? <laughs> People always say, if you're on a desert island and you're a vegan and there was a pig, would you eat the pig? You know that story? Oh, no? God. Anyway, I'm not going to make you eat the pig. You're a vegan. <laughs> pig's your friend. You're right. on the island and you're stuck there and you can take one vegan dish, packaging free, of course, a music album or a book. What would what are those three things that you would take with you? Okay, I would take a pad thai with the fake chicken from Cook Daily. I would eat that every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, the book, I would probably take... Oh, God, I've been reading so many at the moment... What would I take? This that's a hard question. Okay, no, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say like a clever answer. <laughs> I'm just gonna say what I would literally take. I would probably take Shrill by Lindy West mm-hmm. because it's like a collection of essays, mm-hmm. and she is. Am I allowed to swear? 
You did already. Okay, she's <laughs> fucking hilarious. And she's a really interesting woman. She talks about how to use comedy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's I'm waffling. Mm. What was the last thing I'm allowed to take? A music album. Music album. You could say an artist if you wanted to. No, I'd probably take like the best hits from like Classic FM. I'm such a grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amy Lucas, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me waffle on for ages. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. I'll be back next week with more veganism, life, fashion, technology, and everything else in between. 